Why are we undertaking a study of church leadership, biblical church leadership? Why are we doing this? There's really a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion out there today with regard to this topic. It's not that the scriptures are confused. God is not confused in this matter at all. He speaks very plainly regard to this, but there is a lot of confusion out there in contemporary evangelicalism. Now, this is not the most significant topic there is. This is not a salvation issue, but it is not insignificant either. In fact, First Timothy, or Second Timothy, rather, 3, 16 and 17 says all scripture is profitable, right? And so what we are going to study here over these next few months is going to be profitable to us. Many, many voices, particularly in the church growth movement, are advocating what's called a CEO style of church leadership. What that means is that they see the the pastor as the chief executive officer of the church who has been charged with the task of managing and growing the church through programming. That That is sort of a current model that is out there. And, beloved, it is not a biblical model. It is not a biblical model. I am not the CEO of Foothill Bible Church. In fact, I have purposefully avoided the title senior pastor. I have taken, and titles, you know, I'd be happy if we got rid of all of them, but, but you have to have something to put on your business card. So it says teaching pastor, because that's how I understand my biblical role here among us, is that I am a teacher here in the congregation. First and foremost, I am a teacher. I spent 16 years working in banking. I read a lot of management books in that time. And the church growth stuff that I am reading today, and I don't read a lot of it because I can't stand to, but the stuff that I am reading reads a lot like what I read in business school, a lot like what I read when I was working for Bank of America. It just happens to have some Bible verses pasted onto it. But it looks like a secular management book. And that is not what the scripture is all about. I am hoping that by this series together that we will recover within our fellowship anything that we've lost with regard to biblical leadership and that we will implement all that the scriptures have to say with regard to this area. And if we do that, we will really experience God's richest blessings. So this evening, here we go, there will be structure this evening. We're going to examine three aspects, for those of you who like to keep notes, three aspects of God's loving rule in his church. Three aspects of God's loving rule in his church so that we can confidently answer the question, whose church is this? Whose church is this? First, God formed the church according to his plan. First aspect. God formed the church according to his plan. We're going to really this evening just do an inductive Bible study together and work through these three aspects. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. It is Christ's church, it is God's church, and it is formed according to God's plan. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And let's begin there. Ephesians 3. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Paul is speaking here to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 3, he says, By revelation, 
there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is this mystery of Christ? Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, here it is, the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There was a mystery unknown in Old Testament times. In fact, follow the thought and go over to Colossians. Go to the right to Colossians and look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 and following. Paul says here, of this church, I was made a minister, verse 25, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the preaching Paul's talking about, is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is a mystery involved with the church. The Old Testament saints did not see or know about a church. Now, they knew about Gentile salvation. The prophets talk about the nations flooding into Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 42, don't turn there, verses 6 and 7 speak of the fact that the gospel through Israel will go out to the nations. So it's not that the Old Testament saints didn't know that Gentiles would be rightly related to God someday. That's not the point. What they did not know was that in that there would be a body formed, that there would be an in Christ relationship in which Jew and Gentile, formally separated, formally alienated, would be put together in one body in Christ. That body is called the church. That was a mystery unknown to the, to the Old Testament saints, made known to us primarily through the writings of the Apostle Paul. God had a plan. God had a plan from the foundation of, before the foundation of the earth. That plan called for a church. Simon. The prophets do not talk about the church at all. There is no Old Testament prophecies relating to the church. It is the Apostle Paul who makes this known. God had a plan. That plan included us, Gentiles, that we would be rightly related to the God of Israel through the Messiah of Israel, Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. Now, how does this happen? How do we become in Christ? How do we become rightly related? How does the formation of the church happen? Well, for that, you need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What is the means of entrance into this mystery church? The means of entrance is spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one 
Spirit, at the point of conversion, when you have entrusted yourself to Christ, when you have given up on your own self-effort at making yourself right before God, and you have confessed that you cannot do it, and that you are deserving of judgment, yet you will flee to Christ to pay your penalty for you as a substitute. At that moment of faith, the Spirit of God takes up residence within you and you are plunged into the body of Christ. You are baptized into the body of Christ. You are placed into the body of Christ and you become part of the church. And just like water baptism is a once, never to be repeated event, this is a once and never repeated event. You are plunged into Christ. That is God forming his body. Let's continue. Go back to Ephesians for a minute and let's continue to trace this idea. God formed the church according to his plan. God had a plan. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. God had a plan. Paul tells us in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law. Do you ever wonder why Christ came when he did? Why didn't he come before, earlier? Why didn't he wait and come later? Why did he come at the time he came? Because it was in the fullness of time. It was the time that God had set aside to form his church, to do what he was going to do. Now, verse 25, this is a whole section about husbands, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love your wives and... Maybe someday we'll preach through this section. But notice Paul uses what Christ has done as the basis under which husbands should love their wives. He says, husbands, you're to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ came to die to redeem a people unto himself, to form a church. He came and he died to form the church. Look over to verse 30. It says, we are members of his body. This is the plan that God had. God in the inter-Trinitarian conversation somewhere back before time, we suppose that he said something like, I want to give you a bride, my son. I'm going to give you a bride. But you have to go redeem her. You have to go make her clean. You have to carve her out for yourself. You have to wash her. You have to purify her. And then you will take her unto yourself. And so, in the fullness of time, Christ came, didn't he? The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, and he came to carve out that bride for himself. That's all what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 5. Look at the book of Acts. Go over to the book of Acts to chapter 20. These are key and significant statements. This is all foundational, by the way, to where we're going. You could do a whole series on the church, but we're not going to do that. But look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and notice something. Paul's writing here to the elders at Ephesus, and he, he says, Be on God for, guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Now here it is, which he purchased with his own blood. Which he purchased with his own blood. The plan called for Christ to come and to purchase a people unto himself. To form a church purchased with his own blood. And then at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. At the day of Pentecost, 
when Peter preached, what happened? 3,000 people believe and the church is born, right? The church is born at that moment in time to go forward for generation after generation after generation until it is done, until all those elect from before the foundation of the world come to faith in Christ, until the bride is ready, until the body is fully formed, and then Christ will come and he will take his church to be with him. John chapter 14, that's the promise. So God formed the church according to his plan. Second aspect, second aspect, God fills the church according to his pleasure. God formed the church according to a plan. He fills the church according to his pleasure. He will fill up this bride. He will round out this body according to his pleasure. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, and Pastor Dennis did such a fine job reading and helping us to pray through a lengthy section. And I won't dally here, but I want to show you something, a, a phrase that is repeated three times in this section. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. Look at those verses. See if you can see what the phrase is that is repeated three times. Let me see it. To the praise of his glory, right? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory, he has done all of this. It is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. It is for the praise of his glory. Why has he done what he has done? Why has he lavished upon us all these spiritual riches? It is for the praise of his glory. It is for the praise of his glory. Look at chapter 2 of this epistle. Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 4 and following. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God saved us that he might show off his grace to all of the universe for all of eternity. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. He fills this church universal and this local body here at Foothill, according to his pleasure. It is about him. It is not about us. Go back to the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 13. Who comes into the church? Who believes? Paul has preached to the Jews and they have rejected the message here. And so he turns to the Gentiles. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life did what? 
believed, believed. According to his pleasure, he reaches out and touches sinful men and women and draws them unto himself. He rearranges their will, their disposition. They are at enmity to God. They are hostile towards God, and God rearranges that and creates friendship. He reconciles us unto himself. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. God fills the church according to his pleasure. First Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. You remember the problem of the church at Corinth? Problems, I should say. It seemed like there was very little that they had right. But one particular problem at the church at Corinth was division, wasn't there? There was a party spirit, not in the sense of going out and, and being, uh, you know, getting drunk or being happy in that sort of sense, but in the way that people were following after certain leaders, certain parties. There were certain men that had been elevated within the congregation, and the congregation was divided and was following one man or another. Some were following Apollos. Some were following Peter. Some were following Paul. Some claimed to be super spiritual, and they just followed Christ. But the church was divided. And so Paul brings some needed correction here. And in verse 6, look what he says. He says, I planted. Apollos watered. But what? God was causing the growth. God was causing the growth. It was not Paul's work that brought about the growth of the church at Corinth. It was not Apollos' work that brought about the growth of the church at Corinth. They were vessels used of God. One planted the seed, the other watered the seed. But it was God that caused the seed to grow. Now, any of you who have ever planted a garden at home, you know that, right? You might scratch the dirt open and, and throw in a handful of seed and, and cover it up, and maybe you put some fertilizer on it, and you, you water it regularly. But is there anyone who would sit here and claim that it is your effort that causes the seed to grow? Of course not. You know that to be true, because you throw the same handful of seed into the garden, and some sprouts and some what? Some doesn't. Yet it gets the same water, the same fertilizer, the same sun, the same soil. Some seed grows and some doesn't. Because God causes the growth. Verse 7, so then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. We're nothing. But it is God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one in their labors, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are, and notice this, notice these metaphors here, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are God's field. We are God's building. We are God's church. We have, this church has been built and filled According to the pleasure of God. According to the pleasure of God. It's all about Him. Remember the question we're trying to answer tonight. What is it? Whose church is this? That's the question. Whose church is this? I mean, if God formed it according to His plan, if God fills it according to His pleasure, whose church is it? It's God's church. 
It's God's church. That makes him entirely sovereign over it, doesn't it? See? And therefore, that leads us really to the third aspect. God fashions it according to his prerogative. God fashions it. God shapes it. God fashions the church according to his prerogative. It is his church. He will decide how the church is to be shaped. Now, in the context that we're going to be looking at, it has everything in the world to do with leadership. How should the leadership of the church function? How should they be selected? Who is qualified? Who is disqualified? What are their responsibilities? How do we answer these questions? We go to the Word of God, right? It's His church. It is His church. So that's what we're going to look at now. God fashions the church according to His prerogative. Back to Ephesians again. The epistle that has everything in the world to do with the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. We'll pick it up then in verse 19. How about that? Ephesians 2 and verse 19 and 20. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's another metaphor for the church. You are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." There are foundation ministries for the church. When the church was first formed or fashioned at Pentecost, there were certain foundational ministries that God put down, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And verse 20 tells us what these foundational ministries are. They're twofold. Do you see them? They are apostles and they are prophets. These are not Old Testament prophets. He is not referring to the Old Testament prophets here. He's talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. We know that first and all because the apostles are listed first in order here. If he were talking about Old Testament prophets, he would say prophets and apostles. Secondly, if it was the Old Testament prophets, they are normally referred to as the prophets. The prophets. And you see no definite article here. So these are the apostles and the prophets. These are the foundation ministries of the church. Go to chapter 4 and let's continue to follow this train of thought. Ephesians 4 and look at verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, skip over verses 9 and 10. It's in a parenthesis, and it's not important to where we're going here. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Do you see this? He gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. It's speaking about gifts given to the church. He gave gifts to men, the end of verse 8. Four types of individuals. 
given to the church. Four groups of gifted individuals given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and I believe the better rendering here is pastor teachers. Pastor teachers, or if you like, teaching pastors. Four types of gifted individuals given to the church. And we know from chapter 2 and verse 20 that the apostles and prophets are what kind of gift to the church? They're a foundational gift, aren't they? How many times is a foundation laid? Just once. And so when the foundation has been laid, there is no need for those gifted men any longer, is there? And so the apostles and the prophets are gone. They're gone. The foundation has been laid. The building is being erected. But there are still evangelists and there are still pastor teachers whose responsibility given to them by God is the building of the superstructure of the church. How do I know that? Keep reading. Why did he give these people? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Evangelists and pastor teachers are given by God to the church for a purpose. The purpose is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Us. We're the saints. The church. To equip us. Why? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How long is this to go on for? How long will there be evangelists? How long will there be pastor teachers? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How long will it go on? All the way to the end. All the way to the end. Because there are always people being added to the church. And when they first come into the church, when they first receive Christ by faith, what are they? What does the Bible call them? They're babes. They need to be what? Built up. They need to be matured. The purpose continues until Christ comes and draws the curtain down on this whole process. And the church is complete. I know exactly when Christ is going to return again. Keep the tape going on this, please. Christ is going to return again when the last individual is brought into the body of Christ. Now, I don't know when that will happen. I don't know when that will happen, but I know the event that will trigger the return of Christ. When the work is done, when the body is complete, when the bride is ready, the groom will come, just like in a Jewish wedding ceremony, and will receive her unto himself. But until that time, the process continues. So God is fashioning or shaping the church according to his prerogative. Now, is it all about a few professionals? Is, it, is the church, the, the ministry of the church just left to a few professionals, to evangelists and to pastor teachers? What's the answer? No, of course not. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? You've got these chapters right on the tip of your tongue. Somebody comes to you and and wants answers to questions like this, you know right where to go, don't you? Well, if you don't, you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But to each one, how many? Each one. Does that leave anybody out? That doesn't leave anybody out. 
But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. For the common good. We need each other. I need you. I need every single one of you. And you all need each other. Because you have been uniquely gifted by God. The Spirit has given you a manifestation, a giftedness. When? At the moment of your conversion. When you were plunged into the body of Christ, the Spirit of God took up residence within you. And at that moment, you received your spiritual giftedness. And you are ready to begin ministering to the body of Christ. And if you don't minister, we don't get the benefit of your gift. And that would be like running a race with one toe hurt or your foot tied behind your back or, or a headache or a toothache or, or whatever. You, you extend the metaphor. We need each other. See, the church of God should be a full employment church. There shouldn't be anybody in the church who says, I don't know what my giftedness is. I don't know what my ministry is. I don't have a ministry. My ministry is to sit in the pew and put money in the plate when it passes by and pay those guys to do it. No, no. That's not your ministry at all. It's your act of worship, Pastor Dennis, is it not? To put money in the plate when it goes by. It is merely an act of worship. That is not your ministry. Somewhere you need to be serving the body of Christ, because we need you. We need you. Look at verse 11. But to one in the same, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Remember I said the church is fashioned. God fashions the church according to his prerogative. Do you see it? He distributes the giftedness to each one individually, just as he wills. Maybe you don't like your giftedness. You'd rather trade it in for something else. Guess what? You can't do that because whose church is this? It's God's church. It's not your church. You can't trade it in. Everybody can't be, if we were to continue through this chapter, everybody can't be a, an eye, right? Or a foot or whatever. You know, he goes through the whole thing. You can't all be that. You've been given something else. Minister it to the glory of God, to the praise of his glory, he says. Gifts are given by God to all those who are his children, according to his prerogative, for the common good of the body of Christ. Let's continue tracing this theme. Go back with me to Acts chapter 20 again. We're tracing the theme of God fashioning the church according to his prerogative. We said that he has given certain leaders to the church for a specific purpose, and that is the maturing of the body. But it has not all been left to professionals. Each and every one of us has been given gifts, haven't we, for the common good, individually, just as God the Spirit desires us to have. But there are certain individuals that are in leadership positions within the church. Certain ones whom God has marked out for positions of leadership. Notice in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 again. It says, be on guard for yourselves. Again, he's speaking to the elders. And for all the flock, and here it is, note this, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who makes someone an overseer, an elder in the church? Who does it? 
God does it. The Spirit of God does it. Okay? It is His work, His ministry, His church, fashioned according to His prerogative. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, verse 3, giving instructions here to the elders of the church. And he says, you're, you're not to lord it over those. And then note this phrase, allocated or allotted rather to your charge, allotted to your charge. The spirit of God has made you overseers. The people of God are allotted to your charge. That means that someone else has entrusted them to you. The oversight of the church is a delegated responsibility and authority by God. It is His church, formed according to His plan, filled according to His pleasure, fashioned according to His prerogative, and He chooses to delegate leadership to a certain group of people. Go to 1 Timothy, back to the left. And go to 1 Timothy. And I want you to note something here. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a very familiar passage to you, I'm sure. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. It's a pivotal text. We're going to look at it in excruciating detail in the weeks to come. But this text is all about what? Talk to me. Tell me. Elders and deacons, isn't it? This is like one of the key texts with regard to elders and deacons. Look at verses 14 and 15 that follow immediately after this text. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Whose church is it? It is God's church. It is the church of God. What are the requirements for the leadership of the church? They are given here in, in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 3. And Paul would have given it verbally to them, but he said, in case I'm delayed and, and can't get there in time, I am writing this for you so that you know how things are supposed to be done. It is God's church. And his rules for how it is to be run are very specific. Very specific. The leadership of the church is not a free-for-all. It is not open to people's interpretation and own human division or, or ideas that they come up with on how the church is to be led. It is to be led according to the Word of God. Now, in the time that we have left, let me try to clear up a measure of confusion that may be existing in some of your minds. Some biblical terminology. The word elder... The word overseer, the word bishop, the word pastor. You've heard all of those words, haven't you? How do they relate to each other? That's what we want to look at here in just a few minutes in the time that is left. Let's look first at the word elder. The word is presbyteros in the Greek. It's translated, comes into the English for us as elder. It denotes dignity, maturity, Spiritual experience and understanding. It, it, it rolls across nicely from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament times, the nation of Israel was led by its elders, right? It was a representative form of government, if you will. The people delegated to these elders in the nation of Israel certain measures of authority so that they could lead the people. It was not a democracy. 
in Israel. This terminology comes over into the New Testament, into the Greek as, as presbyteros, and, it, and it's elder. And when you see this in the New Testament, translated elder, it's referring to the man. It's talking about the man himself, the character of the man, a man who is dignified, a man who is mature, a man who is, has spiritual experience and understanding under his belt. That's an elder. But we also see the word bishop, or normally translated overseer. Episkopos is the Greek word. We get from that the English word episcopal. comes from this Greek word episkopos. And it's really a combination of two Greek words. There's a preposition epi, which means over, and skopos, which we get an English word scope, which has the idea of what? Seeing or sight. So uh, an, an episcopos is one who looks over, one who oversees the church. It's translated overseer in the text that you use, but it can be translated bishop. And it was not too long into the history of the church, really just moving into the second century, that corruption began to seep in quickly, where the idea that there were bishops that were above and over many churches and that these churches reported up through these bishops. That is not a biblical understanding. It doesn't take long to stray from the principles of the Word of God. So overseers, really, the idea is watching over its guardianship, its leadership. All those concepts are associated with overseer, and it, it speaks about the mission. So the word elder speaks about the man, what kind of a man he is. Oversight, or overseer, speaks about his mission. What is his mission within the church? That leads us to the third word, pastor. Poimain in the Greek, pastor. It means shepherd. It means to feed in the verb form. Poimaino is a verb form. It means to shepherd, to tend, to feed, to care for. It's a shepherding concept. And this is really the ministry the ministry is to shepherd people. It is to feed people. It is to care for people. It is to teach people. So you have the man as an elder. His mission is oversight. The way he does his mission is as a pastor, as a shepherd among the people. It's all the same person. All the same person just looked at from different angles. Now let me demonstrate that to you. Go with me back to Acts. Verse 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. We're going to see that elders, overseers, pastors are one and the same individual. Verse 17, Acts chapter 20. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him whom? The elders of the church. Go over to verse 28. He's speaking to these men that he's called to himself. He says they're elders, right? And he says to them, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. To do what? To pastor or to shepherd the church of God. Do you see it? It is all right there in just those two verses. He calls the elders to himself. He said, God has given you a mission. Your mission is what? Oversight. How do you carry out your mission? By shepherding. By shepherding. Go over to Titus, chapter 1. Let's continue to drive this home, lest you think somehow this is an isolated reference. 
Titus 1 and verse 5. Paul's writing to Titus, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint what? Elders in every city as I directed you. These are the men. I want you to appoint men, elders in every city. Drop down to verse 7. He's given the qualifications now for who these men have to be. For the overseer must be above reproach. You see, it's used interchangeably here. It's used interchangeably. Elder, overseer, bishop. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 25. 1 Peter, verse 25, chapter 2. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd. That is the word pastor. You have returned to the pastor and the episkopos, the guardian, the overseer of your souls. He's talking about Christ. He's saying that Christ is the pastor and the overseer of your souls. And Christ delegates that ministry to a certain group of men within a congregation. Look at chapter 5 in the same letter. And notice the interchangeableness with which these words are used. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, presbyteros, as your fellow elder. Notice that. Peter the apostle calls himself what? A fellow elder. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, that you do something, that you shepherd the flock of God. There is the verb form. That you pastor the flock of God among you, exercising episcopos, oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Okay? There's an interchangeableness with all of these terms. Elders, pastors, overseers. All one and the same. should also note for you that in all of these references, there is an S on the end of the word. Overseers, elders, right? Because there are how many? More than one. More than one. There is a plurality of elders. There is a plurality of overseers. There is more than one pastor in a church. How many is up to the will of God, right? He's the one who appoints them. But there's always more than one. Always more than one. Whose church is this? It's God's church. It's not my church, is it? He's the chief shepherd. That's right. This is not my church. This is not David's church. By God's grace, you will never hear me referring to this as my church. Because it is not my church. Conversely, it is not your church. Nor is it your church. Nor is it our church. Hmm? It's not our church. It is God's church. It is God's church. And you may think this is just semantics in how we refer to it. 
But I think we would do well if all of us worked at amending our vocabulary and referring to the church the way the Bible refers to the church as God's church, of which we are privileged to be a part. Amen? All right. Well, other than Simon, nobody had courage enough to ask a question. We've got just a couple minutes. Are there, is there something you want clarified? <laughs> His question is, a church that does not have a correct structure, is it still defined as a church? Well, it would depend what the structure, what structural problems were. If the problem was just a, a poor leadership model, yes, I would believe there's still a church. Praise God that he works through imperfect people, right? You don't have to get it all just right before God will use you. Isn't that true? I mean, you can come to faith in Christ, and in the next minute, you can be sharing what little you know with somebody else, right? You don't have to be a theologian to share your faith. And uh, God powerfully does what he will do. One time he rebuked a wayward prophet by speaking to him through the mouth of a donkey. Huh? So if God can get his message across through the mouth of a donkey, he can get it through imperfect church structure. But it's a good question. What happens is that they miss some of what God has for them. Well, evangelist is a person who has been specially gifted by God to share the gospel in a broad way. Normally, they, they move from church to church. It's kind of an itinerant traveling type ministry. And it's related to euangelion, the Greek word for the gospel. So uh, you could have evangelists within your church, but, but normally they would, be moving, you would, they would be moving out of your church and doing work uh, in more of an itinerant way. I would see church planting as a good example of, of an evangelist kind of giftedness. Somebody who was involved in church planting. Okay? <laughs> there wouldn't be a church in particular you're thinking about now, would there? <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, um, I was first asked to come on the elder board of a church we were part of when I was 28 years old, and I really wrestled with the whole idea, was there a minimum age requirement? And um, there was in Israel, but I couldn't find anywhere in the New Testament that there was. And uh, the word speaks of maturity. And so I would answer the question by saying it depends on the, on the congregation. If the most spiritually mature men happen to be young, and they meet all the qualifications as laid out, then I don't see anything that keeps them from it based purely on age. But there are some wisdom issues, too. You know, you haven't lived very long. And so uh, how wise can you really be? But maybe in a, in a particular church setting where the church is brand new and very immature, and you could have some man who's in his young 20s who's been walking in the faith for 10 or 15 years and has really grown, it's possible. It's possible. What happens is, as the church matures, its leadership has to mature too. And so men that would be qualified to be an elder in one church may not be qualified to be an elder in another church. 
Not that they don't, when I say not qualified, not that they miss the, the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. That's an absolute. That's a grid through which you have to go. If you can't make it through the grid, it doesn't matter how mature you appear to be, you're disqualified. But there are maturity levels of churches. Mature churches have more mature leaders than immature churches. So God works in that way. You know, uh, when Paul and uh, Barnabas were returning from their first missionary journey, I think it's Acts 13, um, they went on that journey, about a year-long journey, and they were going around evangelizing, right, and planting churches, and as they swung back through, do you remember what they did? They appointed elders in every church after fasting and praying. Those people hadn't been Christians very long, but they were appointed as elders. It's a tantalizing verse, by the way. Tantalizing verse. Was there another question? Right. Well, if you link that with uh, chapter 2 and verse 20, where you have the same group of people listed in the same order, apostles and prophets, and then here in 4.11 you have the same thing, apostles and prophets. Do you see that? You see the same two words used in the same order? And if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 20, they are there said, Paul says they are foundational. They're foundational. So when you build a building, the point of a foundation is it's the first thing laid, Right. And then the building grows after that, so there's no need for further foundation. So these are foundational gifts given to foundational men, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Once the foundation's built, the, the giftedness goes away. Agabus, Silas, Acts 15. We, we all know about Agabus, right? He predicted the famines and all that stuff. But uh, notice in, uh, it's really interesting, in Acts 15, after the Jerusalem Council, and, uh, you know, they go from James with a letter back to the, to the uh, churches of Galatia, to, uh, or to the church in Antioch, and then out from them to Galatia. It says, Silas went with him. Notice how he's described in the text there. He's called a prophet. So Silas was a prophet. Okay, so we have Agabus, we have Silas, two examples of New Testament prophets. That they're related to the 24, uh, the 24 elders, you mean? Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see, the 24 elders of Revelation. I wrote a paper on that for seminary. I'd be happy to give you a copy if you're interested. Uh, there's about eight different views on who the 24 elders of Revelation are. Uh, I'll give you just my view. Uh, my view is that they uh, symbolically represent the church. And why are there 24? I don't know. I don't know. There are other people who believe other things about them. Some believe they're angels. Some believe uh, that they represent Israel and the church. Um, I think they represent the church. So, okay. Great. Let me pray. If you have more questions that you'd rather ask afterwards when there's not, you know, 100 people here, uh, come on up.